Shalom. We are so glad you're joining us on this episode of Our Hope. We created this podcast as a resource for followers of Yeshua, where they can learn more about Israel, the Bible, and the Jewish community. Together, we discuss Messianic apologetics, dive into Scripture, and hear stories from Jewish believers in Jesus. If you've enjoyed our podcast series, please consider supporting us at ourhopepodcast.com support. You could also help us by sharing this podcast on social media, talking about it with your friends and family, or by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. We are so grateful for you, and we hope this episode of Our Hope is both enlightening and encouraging. Welcome to Our Hope, a production of Chosen People Ministries. On May 21st, 2020, Israel celebrates Yom Yerushalayim, or Jerusalem Day. Jerusalem is actually Hebrew for City of Peace. But when many think about Jerusalem today, peace isn't always the first word that comes to mind. We can even ask, what does Jerusalem have to do with peace? Well, the great irony is that at times, Jerusalem has experienced the exact opposite of peace, suffering both physical and spiritual warfare. Today, we're going to explore perhaps one of history's most complex questions. Why is Jerusalem called the city of peace? First, it's important to see that Jerusalem does not get its name from man, but from God's ancient and enduring vision for Jerusalem. So keep this in mind as you listen to this episode. In Hebrew, the word for peace is shalom, which speaks more to the idea of harmony, completeness, and wholeness. From the very beginning, the Lord's vision and desire for Jerusalem is not only that Jerusalem herself would inhabit peace, but that harmony and wholeness would flow throughout the entire world from this city of shalom. We see this in scripture as early as Genesis 12, when God promised Abraham that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. Isaiah chapter 60 captures the glory of the Lord rising upon Jerusalem and nations coming to her light, kings to the brightness of her rising, and the wealth of the nations pouring into her. Throughout the Old and New Testament, Jerusalem is shown as the ultimate, literal dwelling place of the Lord, and Yeshua is its ruler the Prince of Peace. When comparing Genesis to Revelation, we see that Jerusalem will be the end times embodiment of the Garden of Eden. God's plan of redemption began in a garden of peace and prosperity, and it will end in a city of peace and prosperity whose everlasting empire will include and extend to all nations. Right now, this seems like a great lofty vision, and often the idea of a peaceful future can sound cliche and unattainable. But what do the scriptures point to? 
Let's get into the details of this big biblical picture of Jerusalem and how it connects to true world peace. Today, we have with us Dr. Mitch Glazer, president of Chosen People Ministries. Shalom, Mitch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Abe. It's great to be with you. We couldn't think of anyone better to dive deeper into this topic than you. Uh, I mean, you have spoken countless times on praying for the peace of Jerusalem, and I'm not sure I know anyone else who has a deep passion for seeing peace in Jerusalem and in the hearts of Jewish people around the world as you do. Well, thank you for noticing that. I do really care about Jerusalem and Israel and about the Jewish people and connecting the Jewish people and Israel to Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah and Savior of the world. Amen. Uh, so since we're talking about Jerusalem, I would love to know about your first trip to Israel and your first trip to Jerusalem. What was that like for you? I really remember that. It was 1976, and I was actually still in seminary uh, studying for uh, the ministry. And of course, I'm a Jewish believer, and uh, I grew up believing that Israel was a very important, significant place, and that only became more so as I came to faith in, in Jesus and as I began really understanding the Bible and understanding the role that God had for Jerusalem and Israel in, in his plan. Got on the plane. Uh, on uh, El Al, and I was going over to Israel actually with a Messianic singing group. And as I was traveling uh, through uh, to Israel on the plane, I remember thinking, I'm not going to be like all the other tourists. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not just going to go gaga over Israel. It's, it's, it's important, but it's, you know, it's, it's another country. And, and I remember I got off the plane and I, my first instinct was uh, was to uh, jump onto the tarmac and kiss the ground. And I was beside myself with excitement and thrilled to be there. And I realized that I was stepping foot on the fulfillment of prophecy. And it was just overwhelming to me. Wow. I could say a lot more. We traveled as a singing group. We sang at various Messianic congregations, kibbutzim. The work of the Lord, the Messianic movement was very, very uh, immature. And at that time, and there were not many uh, congregations and not many believers. I think I knew all of them within a month. There were only a, maybe under a thousand. I'm glad that I made that first trip in 1976, because now many years later, I can appreciate the incredible work that God's done among Israelis. And I see it all over the place. And so Israel was a very important part of my early journey as, uh, as a, a worker for the Lord. And I think that God put Israel on my, on my heart, not just as a tourist or as a subject of fulfilled prophecy, but the, but the Israelis, the Jewish people lived in Israel. God broke my heart for my fellow Jews living in Israel on that first trip. Wow. That's amazing to hear. Uh, so just a question. Why do you think God has such a heart for this city? Well, I think that God has a heart for cities in general. I'm one of those people. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> I'm a ur messianic urbanite, you know, and uh, I live in the Holy Land, Brooklyn. It's been a little marred and, and scarred lately, but yeah. uh, I believe that God uh, maybe began with uh, began with a garden and ends with a city, you mm -hmm. know, in, in the, in, when you go through the length of Scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, God loves the city of Jerusalem, probably uh, as a result of his commitment and covenant to Abraham in Genesis 12. Mm -hmm. 
So in Genesis 12, God promised a few different things. Number one, he promised that the Jewish people would have a land. He promised that they would have a relationship with God. He promised that that they would be a people, an enduring people. Mm -hmm. And he promised that they would have a vocation, a vocation to be uh, alike to the nations. Through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And these four great themes are reiterated over and over and over again in the Bible. And these four great themes not only have their fulfillment in the Jewish people, but these four themes really are fulfilled in a magnificent, holistic way through the establishment of Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. particularly under the leadership of the Messiah of Israel, uh, Jesus. And so I believe that God uh, always had a love for Israel and the Jewish people, and that he chose one Semite, Abram, and his wife, Sarah, performed a miracle in her womb to produce a child of promise, fulfilled the covenant by giving uh, the Jewish people a land, and then ultimately, through that group of Jewish people, through the Jewish people in general, the Messiah was born, and it's very fitting that the one who died and rose in Jerusalem will reign in Jerusalem uh, Mm -hmm. one day. And at that point, we will see the culmination and fulfillment of all these Abrahamic promises that were laid out throughout Scripture. And Jerusalem has a central role in the fulfillment of God's prophetic plan. Amen. So can you tell me a little bit about the connection Melchizedek has with Jerusalem? So uh, Melchizedek, this very strange character who's mentioned in Genesis 14, 18, and Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2, mm-hmm. uh, was the king of Salem. Mm-hmm. Um, and Salem is identified with Zion. Uh, Zion and Salem, Ariel, and a number of other terms are used synonymously, sometimes with Jerusalem, sometimes with Israel in general. Um, So it's hard to tell the difference. But there's no doubt that Zion and Salem are referring probably to Jerusalem. And you see that in Psalm 76, verse 2. And this was actually a tradition that was widespread in antiquity. And it actually um, makes itself known in in some of the uh, early rabbinic writings. Um, The word uh, Salem, of course, is from Shalom means peace. Mm -hmm. The word uh, Melchizedek is an interesting word. Uh, It's made up of a composite, it's a composite made up of king of righteousness. Mm. So the king of righteousness was actually the king of Salem, which is linked to Jerusalem throughout scripture. And so it's fair to say that if Salem is Jerusalem, then indeed the scriptures are absolutely uh, magnificent in detailing Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, as a type of the future king of righteousness, Jesus the Messiah. Right. Wow. That's a great connection. So fast forwarding a little bit from uh, Abraham and Melchizedek. We know that Israel experienced a time of peace under King David's leadership, but it did not last forever. So can you tell us what went wrong and how Jerusalem specifically was affected? Sure. Uh, If you remember, King David uh, conquered Jerusalem, and uh, for a while he was just king of uh, Jerusalem, actually, and then became the king over all Israel. 
And you see that reflected in the historical books in, uh, in, uh, in Samuel and the uh, Kings and Chronicles. And uh, the story of David is a, a, quite a story. If you remember, he was chased through the wilderness and the caves by King Saul, mm -hmm. who was his mentor. And so if you ever feel like you are being uh, devoured by your mentor, you're not the first one to think that way. <laughs> and uh, so David is a great example of how to survive your mentor. And uh, he honored his mentor because he was in a cave, if you remember. Mm -hmm. And Saul went in there to do whatever he needed to do. And, and instead of killing him, David took a piece of his robe. And so in a strange sense, he was also uh, devout and uh, loyal uh, to Saul. And, uh, but eventually, uh, David, uh, Saul died. David took, took the leadership and uh, eventually united the nation mm -hmm. so that uh, all the territories of the 12 tribes came, became a united uh, nation under King David once again, and the capital of the nation was in Jerusalem. After uh, David died, his son Solomon uh, became the king, and Solomon did okay. Mm -hmm. Had a few too many wives and a few too many idols, but but he did all right. Mm -hmm. And uh, but uh, his son uh, Rehoboam uh, didn't do so well, and there was a split, and that split created, in a sense, two Israels: the northern part of Israel and the southern part of Israel. The northern part of Israel, its capital was Samaria. The southern part of Israel, the capital was Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was always attached to the Messianic promises and the Messianic line, mm -hmm. which began with King David uh, and, um, and will end with Jesus, of course. And so uh, the Jewish people in the north were quite rebellious. Mm -hmm. And Assyria in 722 AD conquered the north and destroyed the north and, dis and dispersed the Jewish people in the north to uh, all nations throughout the world. In the south, uh, Israel continued, good kings, bad kings. Finally, in 586 BC, the uh, Babylonians came in, destroyed the temple, and dispersed the Jewish people from Jerusalem to Babylon, where, in effect, modern Judaism began, rabbinic Judaism really mm -hmm. began in, in Babylon. Eventually, uh, Babylon was conquered, of course, by, by Persia. And King Cyrus allowed the Jewish people to go back to Israel, rebuild the city, rebuild the walls under uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, then came the Greeks and the Romans. And a very, very uh, well-known event happened during the Roman period. Uh, the Jews were back in Jerusalem and the Jewish people uh, were visited by an incarnated uh, eternal God in the person of Jesus the Messiah. And then... Uh, Jesus, uh, after presenting himself to the Jewish people, had an encounter with the Jewish leaders in Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39. And let me give you just the one verse, Abe, which really sure. encapsulates and gives you the, the, the pathos, the, 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 uh, the feeling of, mm -hmm. of, of this encounter. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, how I would have longed to gather you as a hen would gather her chicks under her, but you were unwilling. And then he went on to say that the house, the temple, would be left desolate and the Jewish people uh, would be scattered once again from the land of 
Israel, and in this case from Jerusalem, particularly the southern kingdom in particular, because of their sins. And Jewish people were scattered. There was always a presence of Jewish people in Israel and in Jerusalem. Uh, but for the next couple thousand years, the Jewish people primarily wandered and went from nation to nation until right. in 1948, uh, God brought the Jewish people back to the land of Israel. And that continues to happen and will continue to happen until that great day when the Jewish people turn to Jesus as Lord and he returns to reign on his rightful throne in Jerusalem. So that's the quick story, Abe. So let's, let's kind of talk about the present. Some believe that every Old Testament prophecy has been fulfilled spiritually through Yeshua and that there is no literal application. Is that the case? I don't think that can be the case if you take the language of the Bible literally. Mm -hmm. And so if you take, if you start with the Bible being a literal document, mm -hmm. it would be rather impossible for this to be the case. I'm now turning pages in my Bible. I'm doing that intentionally in a podcast. <laughs> Thank you, you for know, the sound effects. <laughs> you know I'm reading my Bible, okay? This, this is really authentic, okay? I'm going to read you a verse, Abe, from Isaiah chapter 2. And in Isaiah chapter 2, we're going to look at this to answer your question. And I'm going to read Isaiah 2 first in a way that I don't think is correct by looking at Jerusalem and Israel and the land of Israel as symbolic of the church. Mm -hmm. Okay? Okay. The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 2. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord in our local Baptist or Presbyterian church uh, to the house of the God of Jacob, because our pastor's new name is Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his, his ways and they, we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Chicago, from New York, from Berlin, from Argent, from Jerusalem. Oh, from Jerusalem. Oh my gosh. They use a literal name of a city. For the law will go forth from Zion, used as a synonym for the next word, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he'll judge between the nations, between the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the evangelical uh, Anglicans and, uh, and, and, and others, and will render decisions for many peoples in their local churches and speak to their elders. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not Lift up sword against nations, so no longer will there be interdenominational warfare. And never again shall they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. When you read it like that, then you understand just how wrong it is to mm -hmm. reinterpret the language used in the Bible. And I can read it in Hebrew also, and it only makes it stronger. Mm -hmm. Okay? Right. If you read it literally... Then let me just read uh, verse 3. Many peoples will co say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Mount Zion. There is a literal Mount Zion. It's in Israel. Mm -hmm. To the house of the God of Jacob. The house of the God of Jacob 
is in the land that God promised to Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the Torah, the law, will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Literally. Why? Because in the next couple of chapters, Isaiah is going to say a few things, again, about the relationship between the promised Messiah, the greater son of David, and the city of Jerusalem. Because remember, uh, that's where uh, David uh, was from. So let me just read Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Everybody knows these verses, but they mm -hmm. don't usually think about it. They take these verses literally and then expand the rest. So here right. we go. For a child will be born to us and a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. He's, he's not talking about church government. He's talking about global government. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. We understand that all those beautiful Hebrew names were prophetic names for the person of Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, who is our wonderful counselor. And he is literally the eternal father and mighty God. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. We're talking about a king over a literal kingdom. Here it is. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So how long will this greater son of David, which we know, whom we know to be Jesus, mm -hmm. how long will the greater son of David reign over the throne of his father, David, based upon the eight, the Davidic covenant that was given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So the eternal king reigns forever. The eternal king will reign in a literal city, a literal Jerusalem forever. Admittedly, that that will be expanded after a thousand years. Mm -hmm. But he will reign literally in this intermediate kingdom where all of the promises that were given uh, by, uh, by the prophets uh, will be fulfilled. That's very clear. Thank you for that. I guess this is more of like a Bible study type question, but because uh, I know we're focused on Jerusalem today. How do you balance the spiritual and literal interpretations of scripture um, when we're tackling some of these prophecies? Well, I could tell you this, Abe, that a lot of people, unfortunately, uh, read the Bible, which is Jewish, and think like Greeks. Now, mm. there's nothing wrong with being Greek if you happen to be from Greece. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the problem is, is we are not holistic. We are dichotomous. And so we make distinctions between what is spiritual and what is physical. When if you go back to the book of Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. He put Adam and Eve in a literal garden. Right. They made a literal mistake and they fell and left the garden. And sin has been uh, worse than a virus uh, for all of these uh, centuries. Right. Um, this, the spiritual story of the Bible is told physically. Mm -hmm. Because if you remember, when God made man and woman, he was very, very pleased. That's what the book of Genesis says. Right. And God made man a living soul, a living soul. He breathed the breath of life into man. And so when you start separating between spiritual and physical, then you're going to start interpreting the Bible between mm. physical and spiritual. Then you're going to start separating and, and, and being dichotomous when you're talking about the future of Jerusalem and of Israel. Right. And you're going to start saying there's a 
physical Israel and there's a spiritual Israel. Mm-hmm. By the way, the Bible never said that. Paul did say that there were uh, there were Jewish people, uh, physical, literal Jewish people, and that there were uh, also Jewish people in Romans chapter uh, two, Romans chapter nine, mm-hmm. that were quote unquote spiritual Jews. That never displaced the idea that there were literal physical Jewish people. But mm-hmm. in the Bible, you never see Jerusalem dichotomized. And so I think the problem is, is that we somehow think like Greeks and believe anything physical is less than spiritual. And mm-hmm. I think it's a big mistake. We should not bring that mentality into our Bible interpretation. So would you say that the peace promised in the Hebrew scriptures is a literal peace or a spiritual peace? Well, Abe, I would say it's both. Because again, I want to look at the Bible holistically. And so in in Isaiah eleven six, 6, where the prophet says that the wolf will lie down with the lamb, mm. shows that there will be peace and harmony in creation. Uh, it's paralleled really in Romans uh, chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8, uh, we have the Apostle Paul, also a Jewish believer in Jesus, by the way. Mm-hmm. We have the Apostle Paul talking about the end of the story. And uh, he talks about uh, the uh, the end, end of time uh, when creation, uh, because creation is tainted by sin and is, so to speak, uh, groaning, uh, that in that day, uh, there will be peace. There will be physical peace. There will be peace between nations. Mm-hmm. There will be spiritual peace because the Prince of Peace will reign on his throne. And you could just read through, uh, I don't want to take the time now, but you can read through Romans uh, chapter 8. You will see that there is much you can discover from it. Just read verses 18 through uh, 25, and I think it'll be uh, very clear. Great. So we're talking about this uh, kingdom that we're expecting. And, And the Bible says to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. How does praying for the peace of Jerusalem prepare us for the kingdom to come? So Psalm 122, verse 6, we read, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They will prosper who love thee. And so it's there's a link between Psalm 122, verse 6, and Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless thee, curse those who curse thee. Through you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's a blessing for treating the Jewish people kindly. I believe that part of that blessing is bringing the gospel to the Jewish people. That's the greatest blessing you can give to the Jewish people. But Psalm 122, verse 6, actually talks about prayer uh, for Israel uh, being the means to finding what you pray for, what you prayed for, for Israel. So I'm praying for the peace of Jerusalem. They will prosper who love thee. So by praying for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm being blessed. By blessing the Jewish people, I'm being blessed. You see, God wants us to be kingdom participants. And because Israel and the Jewish people and Jerusalem is essential to his future kingdom, he wants us to be part of of his team that helps to preserve and bless and honor the Jewish people. If the Jewish people are destroyed, what's going to happen to his promises? And so this is a very special blessing for that. It's interesting also 
the word in Psalm 122, verse 6, the Hebrew word, when you say, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, they will prosper who love thee. Like in any language, uh, there are a lot of different words for prosper. And this is a very different word. It's actually a unique word. And the word for prosper there means having emotional well-being, a sense of emotional well-being. Isn't that wonderful? So that's it's almost a, 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 pro, a promise yeah. of personal peace. So when you pray for the peace, the shalom, the wholeness, completeness of Jerusalem, okay, you will prosper. You will have a sense of inner well-being and peace. It's an amazing parallel. You pray for Israel's peace and you get peace. I think that, again, God wants us to participate in his plan. He doesn't need us. He gives us the privilege of participation and his uh, intention to preserve the Jewish people is something that we can all be involved in and we can help. And so we can bless the Jewish people, pray for the Jewish people. We can stand up against anti-Semitism. We can um, um, make people aware of the importance of Israel and the Jewish people. We can go visit Israel and put money into the uh, Ministry of Tourism. <laughs> you know, we can, we can help Israel in so many different ways. And uh, Israel's important. And that it's the key that unlocks the purposes of God in so many ways. Amen. So in light of all of this, there's a lot of work still to be done through those of us who are believers. We need a picture and a reward to anticipate and to encourage us in our mission. Um, believers spend a lot of time thinking about the end times and its signs, especially these days. And this often leaves us with a sense of dread. But ironically, we very rarely use our imagination to anticipate the beauty, the glory, the peace, and the hope that will come in the end. Hope and peace are the goals of the end times, folks. Don't forget that. We are heading toward full restoration from the fall, resurrection, new bodies, new Jerusalem, new everything. So what does the Bible say about the future of Jerusalem, and, and what does that look like to you? Okay, that's a, that's a great question, Abe, that really allows us to, to, to summarize our time together. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, by the way, Zechariah means God remembers. And in verse 10, we're going to see what God remembers. Let me just read verse 9, and then we'll look at 10. In that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So there's a day coming when all the nations surrounding Jerusalem will attack Jerusalem in order to destroy the Jewish people. Uh, we can see that in part now because Israel has a lot of surrounding enemies. Uh, but this is going to be a more intensive time sometime in the future. We know it's not now because of what happens in verse 10. And it hasn't happened yet. Let me read it. God says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem." There's the centrality of Jerusalem in the last days. I will pour out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace, unmerited favor, and of supplication, yearning for more merited favor. It's a play on words in the Hebrew. So that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Well, who was pierced? Obviously, it was Jesus. Now, I don't think the Jewish people have full responsibility for piercing uh, Jesus or crucifying Jesus because 
Each one of us had a part in crucifying Jesus because of our sin. And the Romans had a role in, in, in the crucifixion. But basically the prophet says, they will look on me whom they have pierced and look what happens. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And in that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. And so there is an event coming that's really going to be quite spectacular. It is the end time turning of the Jewish remnant to Jesus. Mm. And that can only happen in Jerusalem. In fact, it couldn't have happened before 1967 because Jerusalem was not in Jewish hands. Right. And so it will happen. Mm -hmm. It will happen in Jerusalem. We need the Jews to be back in Israel. We need the Jewish people to have Jerusalem. And we need enemies surrounding uh, the Jewish people in Jerusalem. You think that can ever happen, Abe? I think so, huh? Right. And so what's, what is going to happen? God is going to remove the scales from the eyes of the Jewish people. They will look to the one who was pierced, and they will mourn for him. In other words, Jewish people will realize that Jesus was the Messiah, that he died for the sins of Jews and Gentiles, and they're going to accept him, just like Romans 11.25 says, in that day all Israel will be saved. Right. All the Jewish people at that time will be saved. Mm -hmm. And then if you read Zechariah 12 through 14, you'll see that this turning of the Jewish people to, uh, to Jesus uh, is the precursor to the second coming of Christ. So in, in verse uh, 3 of chapter 14, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he as when he fights on a day of battle, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from the east to the west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. When you go up the southern steps in Israel, and I, I wish all of you could go to Israel because you could visualize it like me, but if you go up the southern steps and you look to your right, you will see the Mount of Olives, and all the cemetery, the graves between the Mount of Olives and where you're standing. And if, but if you were to walk around the corner, because you can only see it from the Mount of Olives, you would see that there was a gate that's all cemented up. That's the Eastern Gate or called the Golden Gate. And that's where the Jewish people expect the Messiah to return. So there's no question that that understanding is gleaned from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Hmm. So his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and then in Jewish tradition, he will wind his way through the Golden Gate, through the Eastern Gate, into the heart of the old city. And that is when Jesus comes back, and that's when the Jewish people turn to Jesus. Some say it's absolutely before, some say it's immediately after, some say during. I'll let you know after it happens. But there's no doubt that the turning of the Jewish people brings about the return of Jesus. And that brings about the conquering of his enemies and the establishment of the promised Davidic kingdom in Jerusalem with King Jesus on the throne of his forefather David in fulfillment of all of these prophecies. So the future of Jerusalem, Abe, is the future of the world. That was a great way to wrap up. Thank you so much. Dr. Glazer for talking us through this. Um, 
with Jerusalem Day coming up, I, I, I just, I'm so grateful to hear all about this. I feel encouraged as a believer in Jesus that this city that currently has so much tension and so much turmoil um, also has so much hope for, for me as a believer. And I hope everyone listening feels that same way. So thank you for joining us in quarantine studios. <laughs> We're on Zoom. Uh, and, uh, you know, until next time. Thank you, Mitch. You're welcome. Shalom. As we celebrate Jerusalem Day, let's remember to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and for those who dwell there to know Yeshua as their Prince of Peace, in whom all things hold together, past, present, and future. For today's episode, we would like to give you a free gift just in celebration of Jerusalem Day. We are giving a free digital download of our book entitled Israel's Glorious Future. Just visit chosenpeople.com slash Jerusalem Day. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Today's episode was made possible thanks to Dr. Mitch Glazer, Nicole Vaca, Grace Swee, Kyron Bautista, Elizabeth Carp, and Robert Walter. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Our Hope. If you like our show and want to know more, check out ourhopepodcast.com or chosenpeople.com. See you next time.